What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. You know, there's just something unique about being around greatness. Great leaders fascinate me, and great leaders really fascinate me when they know how to ask great questions. They can define what real greatness really looks like, and they can look back, and they can know what greatness really is all about. I'm telling you, you are in for such a treat today on episode 192 of Lynch with a Leader. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and places that God has put us. Well, today we get to do a deep dive in to great leaders today. In fact, we sat down with Don Yeager, former uh, prolific writer of Sports Illustrated, but even more than that, his autobiographies that he has written for some of the greatest of all time, Walter Payton, Warwick Dunn, David Ross, the manager of the Chicago Cubs, along with many, many, many others, including his book on John Wooden. Don Yeager has gotten a front row seat and a backstage pass to leaders' lives. While not only being a great author, he is a phenomenal speaker, and you are just going to love our time with Don Yeager. So I don't really know where you're listening from today, but I know this. God's got something for you. So wherever you're listening from, whatever you're doing, I want you to hit pause. I want you to pull up a chair, take out a notepad, something to take, take notes on, and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Don Yeager. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining me in this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Well, Mike, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, anybody that has a backdrop like yours, I am all in to jump in and do these calls. Well, listen, I feel the same way about yours. I'm wanting to get through the screen and take a look at all this memorabilia behind you. It, it really, though, we were saying this before we jumped on the call, What's behind you is just more than stuff you've collected. What does that room mean to you that's behind you? Well, it's just, it's a reflection of a journey. You know, it's uh, it's gifts from a lot of people. Uh, Walter Payton, who I lived with for the last few weeks of his life as he was battling cancer, and he and I wrote a book together, uh, gave me a jersey that hangs over my shoulder, Uh uh, Shaquille O'Neal, one of my favorite people on the planet, took a pair of shoes off one day after playing a game <laughs> and just handed me the shoes. You get a size 23 and a half. You can't have that very often over <laughs> your shoulder. Um, you know, Warwick Dunn, we were talking about him. Warwick, uh, Warwick and I got to got to go go to prison and visit the man that killed his mother. And uh, I got to witness maybe the most amazing thing I think I've ever seen in my life. And, um, you know, just all of them are... Every bit of it, uh, you know, I, I, I play basketball, love basketball, and uh, Coach K invites me to his old man basketball camp every year. And a couple of years ago, they retired my jersey. I think they were trying to tell me to quit. But 
uh, it was their kind. It was their kind of way of saying. Okay, it's about saying, time, look, Don. In fact, in fact, when they said they want to retire my jersey, they made me take it off. That was bad. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it's so. Yeah, it's just it's a reflection of all the different things. The Blue Angels, which mean a lot. I do some work with them and um, different. Anyway, it's it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to kind of just throw a few things back there that mean something and gives me something to talk about every once in a while. Is there a part of you that looks back there and feels like you've lived 10 lives? Is it, is it hard to even get your arms around all the experiences you've had? Uh, Not really. I, I, I don't think that way. I think I, you know, every day is just a blessing. Right. And if you realize that, uh, who I get to work with today is just, it's, it's an opportunity. It's a, something that I, I, I wasn't, I mean, every day I, I wake up and think, golly, how, how, how crazy is this? You know, you are known for all your writing and all your publishing, but it was sort of an accident that got you in that, that you discovered this gift that God had uniquely put inside you unpack that story a little bit. This is a fantastic story of how God used something that may have seemed to be an accident to get you in the lane you were created for. You know, thank you. It's, it, it is funny. My father was a Methodist preacher. I think um, you may know that. And, uh, uh, and so I was born and raised in Hawaii, um, lived uh, for a couple of years at the, at when I, between my age, the ages 11 and 13, he, um, uh, he did some work in Japan, Okinawa, Japan. So uh, as a freshman in high school, we're moving as a family to Indianapolis, Indiana, not, not the, not the career, not the trajectory most people travel, Hawaii, Japan, <laughs> Indianapolis, right? Not really. Uh, and I show up for uh, for school freshman year. And because I'd spent so much of my life as a kid around military families, I kind of thought the military might be my future. I signed up for ROTC at my high school. And, um, and the night before school was to start, the uh, counselor called and said, not enough kids signed up for ROTC. So they canceled the program at my high school, um, but they were dispersing us, putting us in different classes. And she had me; uh, she was going to put me on the student newspaper. Uh, as and and I mean, no no reason to do that. And uh, and out of that, I literally found a career. So you know, you could uh, if if you don't if you believe in providence as I do, uh, you know, you realize. I wasn't meant to go to the military, though I though I would have I would have loved it and been honored to do it. Uh, I was meant to find my space, and I did. How quickly did you begin to discover? I think this is more than just a school newspaper. There's almost something all, else. Almost all right from the beginning. Really? I just I realized what it did for me. Journalism for me uh, satisf- satisfies my 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 innate curiosity. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, a highly curious person. I love to ask questions. I will uh, ask questions of anyone and everyone I meet. My wife, it drives her crazy when we're in a cab and I've got to know the cabbie story before, before we get out. And, uh, but I, I being a, being in the world of journalism, which is, even though it was a student newspaper, it was a, it was a small time opportunity for me to, I realized I was gifted with the ability to tell, to, to write a few words, but more importantly, I was gifted in being able to draw from other people, uh, their stories. 
and the lane of journalism and sports really came together for you because you had a passion and you played high school sports, right? Did yep. you know pretty early on after the, the sports career ended that you wanted to try to stay in that sports sphere of life? I, I did, but I, I had a diversion for a little while, you know, uh, Mike, I live in Tallahassee, Florida in part because um, my last job in the newspaper world uh, before I went to sports illustrated was I was the political editor of a newspaper in Jacksonville, Florida. How about all, that? All the political editors live in the state capital, Tallahassee, and uh, all the political editors of all the papers in Florida uh, live in Tallahassee. And so I, I, I moved here as a political editor, worked in that role for a couple of years, and then got an opportunity to go to um, Sports Illustrated. And they they don't care where you live as long as you can be on an airplane 200 days a year. So that's what I did for 12 years. What years were you with Sports Illustrated? I was there uh, 96 through 2008. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, my first one of my first assignments was uh, the uh, the bombing at the uh, Olympics in Atlanta. In Atlanta, yeah. Yeah, the Centennial Park. My dad's company printed Sports Illustrated. Oh, no so kidding. So that was one of the benefits of my dad's job was he would always bring home before it got mailed out, I would get the copy before it uh, came home. Uh, it was wonderful, man. And those were the heydays of magazines, man. Those was, were those were the heydays. What did you learn from that experience at Sports Illustrated? What was something that you put into your uh, leadership capital that you may not have been able to get anywhere else? Well, so there are only, as I said, there are only 30 writers for Sports Illustrated in the whole world. They don't care where you live, just as long as you're. But the other thing I loved about it was these were 30 of the most gifted humans, right? Well, 29 plus me, uh, that you could ever be in the presence of if you appreciated what I did for a living. Mm. I got a chance to work with 29 people that were in my space, just, you know, everything they did was gold. Mm. And, um, and, I got to work with them every day and study them and ask questions and, and grow because I was in the presence of talent. Mm. But the other thing I loved about it was <clears throat> there was zero jealousy there. And which is not normal in the world of journalism in the world of journalism. If you are a, at a newspaper and I got a really good assignment, your immediate sense was, man, that should have been mine. And there's a lot of jealousy at newspapers, but it, but for whatever reason at this magazine, I, I experienced none of that. It was 29 people in it and myself on a regular basis, just cheering for each other. And you realize there was this, but, but a lot of it had to do with the confidence. Everyone there yep. knew they were really good. You know, no one was battling to try to figure out, am I as good as these other folks? And because of that, um, I, I, what I learned was, you know, uh, I learned to appreciate and be that person that could appreciate other people's talent. Um, and, uh, and too often in our world, we're, we're busy, um, com competing and, and we're, we're, we're busy. The only way for us to compete is to, is to downgrade someone else, right? That's right. Not to upgrade us. So who's somebody that shaped you, who's somebody that shaped you in that world? Who was one of the other writers or maybe somebody that you reported to in that world that you say was an incredibly 
powerful influence in helping you become who you are today? Well, I would, I would say, um, there were many, but one that I always loved to, to even still today, I chat with him when I'm in his town is Rick Riley, who was, yeah. uh, you know, he, he owned the back page of the magazine, but it wasn't just that he was fantastic with words. You know, that's all, everybody had that gift in that, in that world. He was fantastic with the way he went about getting those words. One of my favorite moments, um, was uh there was a um there was a golfer and now i'm going to draw a blank casey uh he was the golfer that had the with had the withered leg uh he golfed with tiger woods in college at stanford wow. was trying to make his way under the pga tour but he needed a golf cart in order to be able to to play because he he he, his, he was he had a disabled he was disabled and um uh and and Casey um, it became a big story because the, the United States Supreme Court was weighing in on whether or not the PGA's rules, which said you cannot golf if you require any assistance, right, uh, were fair under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And um, uh, and and I just remember uh, everybody in the world was trying to weigh in with their opinion on whether or not this guy got at a competitive advantage by getting a, by, by getting to ride a golf cart as opposed to walk. And um, and 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 Rick Riley went and said and and asked Casey if he could be his caddy for a couple of days. Wow! He said, "Let me carry your bag because I want to know what it's like to be with you." Right? Mm -hmm. And then. Um, on the end of the first day together, Rick looks at him and says, Hey, by the way, your hotel room, does it have one bed or two? It's like, that's kind of weird. Right. And Casey said, well, it has two beds. And Rick says, would you mind if I stayed in your room? I want to know what it's like to be you. And then that night they're sitting in the hotel room, sitting two men sitting in beds across from each other, both wearing gym shorts. And there's the withered leg there. That was the center of this entire debate. And Rick Riley asked him, can I touch the leg? Can I, I want to know what it feels like. Holy cow. To be, and you're thinking all that could be extraordinarily weird. And for a lot of people is extraordinarily weird, but Rick Riley had an, had a, had a sense of what this young man was going through that none of the rest of those people offering opinions had mm. why, because he dared to ask one more question. Mm. And when and when you realize that's that's the kind of gift uh, that that um, he was able to play through the things that he was willing to do and educate many of us um, in, in a way that was um, that was just fantastic. And I I just remember having great conversations with Rick about that entire set setting and understanding, you know, ask one more question. If you ask, if you're willing to to put yourself out there and ask one more question, who knows what the world may allow you to learn? Is that something you've grown in through the years, going from being a young writer to now you've got what thirty five books? Is that right? And that's scary. That's, that's crazy. crazy. That's unbelievable. I know. I know. It is the power of the question something you've grown in as a leader through the years. Without question, I think that's the that's the thing. You know, I made I made reference earlier to Warwick Dunn. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll share with you. Um, 
you know, I got the opportunity to write Warwick's book. And, uh, and, and some of your listeners may know Warwick played in the NFL for a number of years, but, but he had a, his mother was a police officer was shot and killed in a robbery at a bank. Um, when Warwick was 18 years old, senior in high school, um, goes to college, you know, raises his two younger, three younger brothers and sisters, goes to the NFL. When he goes to the NFL, he starts a charity buying homes for women like his mom. Uh, 548 children woke up in a house this morning that they got to call their own because of Warwick Dunn. Like that's how extraordinary this young man is. So he wins the Walter Payton man of the year award, gets a chance to write a book, asked me if I'd write it with him. And as we're moving toward the end of the book, the last interview scheduled is right here in this office and Warwick sits down. I said, Warwick, you know, if I, I, I've read all the stories about the man who was convicted of killing your mother and, and um, it's amply noted that in all those stories that that back then, every time he walked into a courtroom, you got up and walked out immediately. And, and, and back then, I understand why, because you didn't want to breathe the same air as somebody could do something like that. I get it. I get it. But today, you've been through counseling to deal with the, the challenges of what that whole situation has meant to you. Warwick, if that man were to walk in and sit down with us today, what kind of questions would you ask him? What kind of things would you say? That's not a question you ask most people, right? But it was because I learned over the course of time how to be able to draw that question out of, I think of a question like that. Warwick got up. He said, man, I'm not ready for that question. And he left my office, but he came back two days later. And he handed me a notebook filled with questions. Wow. He would ask the man if he could ever meet him. And as it happened in those two days, a friend of mine from Louisiana had called. I told him about work, leaving the office, how awkward I felt. My friend said, you know, that's interesting. There's a law in Louisiana that if you're the victim of a crime that leads the perpetrator to death row and you fill out certain paperwork, the Louisiana Department of Corrections will expedite a meeting between victim and inmate because they want the victims to find closure. So Warwick hands me this series of questions in this notebook, and I reach around and I hand him the article and tell him, by the way, look at this. You could actually go ask those questions. Louisiana has a law that would allow you to do that. And Warwick was like, whoa, I mean, yeah, I'm not ready for that. And he came back three days later and he said, let's go to Louisiana. I want to ask the questions. And Warwick and I and his high school coach went to Angola State Prison to death row to meet the guy that killed his mom. And at the end of this hour together, Warwick looked at him and said, sir, I came here today to forgive you. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever witnessed a human being do, right? It's greater than any Super Bowl I've ever been to, any World Cup you could ever go to. It's the single greatest moment. and. We left that prison and I asked Warwick and, and, and the, the warden actually said to Warwick, you know, young man, one day we're going to execute this guy. And when we do, would you want to be here? And Warwick looked at him and said, no, because as of today, he holds no power over me. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness had given Warwick that freedom. Forgiveness doesn't happen if I hadn't had the opportunity to ask that question. Forgiveness, I mean, all of those things, you know, you realize it's, it was a question that that changed 
his life, my life, the inmate's life. I mean, and so if we if we learn to ask great questions, if we can be engaged with others with great questions, mm. we can we can as Rick Riley did by asking uh, if he could touch the thigh, mm. right? Mm. You can change the you can change the course of history if you just ask the right questions. You know, you said it a second ago that that you believe in providence. You believe there's a greater plan, which I do too. And I I don't believe God wastes any of our time on life in in this world. I believe that our our I have a one uh, one good friend. He says when coincidences are when God just chooses to remain anonymous and our lives intersect these other lives. What's better in Don Yeager's life because you met, let's just take now work done. What by meeting him changed about you? What would you say? Well, I mean, I, I, without question, I mean, I, I won't ever say I'm, I'm, perfect at it but i got better at at offering grace mm. in moments that probably that i that i would previously have ar- argued um grace i i, I didn't want to do that right because that would i it wasn't requested if they didn't ask for forgiveness you know i mean this inmate wasn't asking work to forgive him work just offered it mm you know, and, um, and I, I, so I think I got a little bit better at that. I, I, um, more than anything, I think the other thing that's better for me is that I was reminded again, I I had the opportunity to tell that story uh, in a book. It's been featured on all kinds of public. I tell it often when I speak out in corporate audiences, Warwick was a podcast guest of mine. You, we've talked about podcasting here in which he and I dug into it. It's a really great podcast. Maybe one of my favorite episodes um, of, and, and so I probably, the other thing where I would say I'm better is that I've had the opportunity to engage a number of other people who have learned to forgive because they heard right. Warwick's story. That's right. right. They heard Warwick do something that the average person just does not, most people do not do, and it inspired them. I've gotten letters uh, over the years, many of them, from people, you know what, I went to, I, I went to prison and forgot, forgave somebody for, a drunk driving accident that did some did did damage my change my family and you know i i could think of a bunch of those letters and uh, and the opportunity to tell that story changed the direction of a lot of other people's lives you know the walter payton jersey that hangs behind you and you getting to spend that time with him sweetness the probably the best running back that's ever put a jersey on on an nfl field what did you learn about Walter Payton? Mm-hmm. Most people would never know. Everybody saw the player yeah. during your time getting ready for his book. What did you learn about him? Most people would never know. Well, first off, uh, he was a better man than he was a player, and he was the greatest player ever. Right. So, mm-hmm. I had a chance to to witness his heart in the way that even in his own frailty, right, in his own weak moments, he was trying to figure out how he could deliver on commitments and promises to other people, which was really incredible. Um, 
also had a really uh, incredible experience and in all of that. Um, during one of the days that I was with him, um, I, I, I remember one day, again, talk about questions, right? I said, Walter, um, you know, you've, you've, your first ballot Hall of Famer, uh, Super Bowl champion, MVP of the league, uh, rushing champion, and, you know, at the time oh, held the record for most yards uh, ever achieved by a running back in the NFL. If you could trade all of that for one day in the future, what would the day be? Mm-hmm. And at the time, Walter's little girl, Brittany, was 13 years old. And Walter did not miss a beat. He looked at me and he said, I would trade it all to walk my daughter down the aisle. And he proceeded to take much of the next 30 to 45 minutes, I don't even remember how long it was, to tell me how he imagined that day being, what it was going to be like when his daughter got married. Now I'm writing Walter's book. At the time, you know, he was not going to be alive when the book came out. He was dying and we knew it and it would be, it was going to happen before I would ever get a chance to finish the book. Um, But he, he trusted me, told me the story. And I looked at it and I realized I couldn't include it in the book because no 13 year old little girl should know that that was what her dad was thinking about as he was dying. So I held on to all of that, never shared it with anybody. 15 years later, I get a call from Brittany. She's getting married. And I said, Brittany, I got something for you. Mm -hmm. And I had a chance to go sit down with her and share with her what her dad would say to her on the day she got married. Turned into one of the greatest moments I've ever experienced and only happened because I asked a question. That's right. You know, and, and, and I've heard you talk about your time with John Wooden, the legendary UCLA basketball coach who so many have built leadership principles around life around. And you ended up meeting him and then called him later about getting together. And he was just waiting on you to ask. He was just waiting on you to reach out to him. And how many years do y'all spend 12 years together? Well, 12 years, every other month for 12 years. Hmm. I flew to California to spend a day with him. I had 500 hours of recorded conversation with John Wooden. Best leadership lesson you learned from John Wooden. What was the what was the most impactful thing you got from your time with him? Um he regularly shared with me that I would be my my entire life would be defined by who I chose to give my time to. He said you were um uh everything about and he said it's not it's not who you wish you gave your time to it's who you do give your time to wow he said so don't 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 talk to me about don't don't tell me that the people that are central in your life are the people you you imagine you're with actually calculate the hours and tell me who you're spending your time with Mm. and he said um you will never outperform those people and that if you want to be better always be improving the circle of people you put around you. How did that shape you? What what would be different about you if you hadn't met John Wooden? Well, I would tell you to this day, 
uh, once a year, uh, I, I pick a weekend and a city, and I have a group of people, um, uh, as it happens, all of them are men, because they just that's who has had the greatest impact on my life. A group of people who meet me away for a weekend um, that is, you know, generically called the circle of greatness, right? I love it. I love it. And uh, and and they are they we get together because um, the influence they they showed into my life. I want them to show into each other's life as well. And so, how am I different as a result of that? I, I mean, I'm constantly monitoring my circle constantly uh growing it constantly trying to invest into the people who are invested in me um i am uh yeah it's uh yeah we we the, the group and i were just together a few weeks ago more than a couple of months ago in in chicago i took him to go see a, a chicago cubs game and spent time with david ross the manager of the cubs with whom i also wrote a book um and um I just spent the weekend, you know, uh, ha- pouring into each other. And it was a really incredible, no agenda, no, uh, no, you know, no financial condition, right? It is just um, a group of people who all uh, share certain common, common interests. Um, but more importantly, they all know that they're better based upon the people they have around them. That's so good. I was speaking, it's funny, I was speaking at a leadership event today, and my last point uh, of the outline was about knowing your why. And I said, oh, it's so funny, I've got a podcast today with a gentleman, that's a big part of his book, is these great companies know their why. And I had a guy walk up after it was over, and he said, I heard Don on Entree Leadership with John Maxwell, and he was talking about David Ross, and I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. And he said, ask him how to be valuable without being the most valuable. Right. What's a, what, what, and that was great. I'm like, absolutely. I will write that down. That is great stuff. So what, <laughs> what would be your answer to that? So the story is that David Ross, um, you know, he was a, he was a catcher in the, in the major leagues, right? Obviously caught for your Braves yeah. there for a while. Um, but in, in fact, his life turned, his life made a great change there in Atlanta. He was, um, uh, his previous stop, he, you know, he played for seven teams over 15 years, but his previous stop to Atlanta was the Cincinnati Reds where he was catching for, um, uh, he was catching for Dusty Baker and he was a starter. It was the only time in his career he was a starting catcher and, uh, and Dusty Baker cut him from the team. Even though he was the starter, he cut him because he said, you're you're okay on the field, but you're bad in the locker room. Mm. You care more about your statistics, your the condition of your um, professional career than you care about the team. And we don't need that. We don't need that in our locker room. And he cut his starting catcher. Uh, David Ross ended up in Atlanta in, in his next year, the next season. And when he was there, he decided, you know what? No one's ever going to call me a bad teammate ever again. Because that was what Dusty Baker called him. He said, you're a bad teammate. He said, no one's ever going to use those two words to describe me again. And so he began a journey in which he started asking everybody that came through the locker room, Mike, Mike, tell me, uh, tell me about the best teammate you ever had. 
and give me three words to describe why they were such a good teammate. What did they do that made them such a good teammate? And he built a list of what it meant to become a great teammate. And then over the course of building that list, he may, he turned that list into a checklist for himself. And every day before he took the field, he went through the list and said, today I will be. And he did each one of, he committed himself to being the best teammate he mm. could be. And over the course of the next four years, while he was in Atlanta as a backup catcher, he developed a reputation as the best teammate in baseball. He was always there on the top step of the dugout when you came off the field to give you a high five and acknowledge something you did out on the field. Even when he wasn't playing, he was fully engaged with his teammates. And his reputation changed. And ultimately, he got the chance to continue on his career in Boston, where he won That's a right. World Series with the Red Sox, and Chicago, where he won a World Series with the Cubs. In And in the very last game of his career, 15 years in the major leagues, Seventh game of the World Series, in his last at bat as a professional baseball player, David Ross hit a home run to help the Cubs win the World Series. And when the game was over, the players carried one player off the field on their shoulders, hmm. and it was David Ross. Because he had made himself invaluable without ever being most valuable. That's so good. That he was is never, so good. He was never even the best catcher on his That's baseball. Right. But he made himself invaluable to those around him by being a servant leader. And that's who David Ross was. It gave him it it, it doubled the length of his career. It it won him two World Series championships. And he's an extraordinary, just an extraordinary man because of that. Um, because he has that uh uh, he, he understands you don't have to be the best to make other people better. That That is such a great segue because I think so many times we think, well, to be great, and you're always talking about greatness, to be great, I always have to be the best. But that's not true, is it? How no, would you absolutely. even define the word greatness? So... It's funny. Um, greatness, I, I argue that it has a different definition to everyone. I also argue that greatness is, uh, it's a pursuit. It's not a, it's, it's, it, it's not an end. It's not an end game, right? Um, I don't, I will never achieve greatness, but I will always be chasing it. Mm, mm. And so if I understand that, what it means is it's, it's a constant improvement. It's a thirst for learning it's a it's a desire to 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 ask questions of other people it is not just simply professional either it is i want to be the best father you know i want my kids to want to introduce me to their friends not because they their friends think i'm famous but because my my kids know i love them right you know and if i can be all of those things if i can be the best husband if i can if i can work to be all of those things i'm chasing greatness and that's that's what greatness is to me it's really it's a it's a it's a lifestyle do you find that as you get older so when you're the the young hungry reporter at sports illustrated starting your career now you're the we're not going to say old savvy I, veteran i'm right? old no, i'm no, old no, no. i get listen, it listen 
we're aging well, man. We're aging well. I'm with you. <laughs> so we're savvy veterans now. Do you find this pursuit something you even have to think about more now than you even did early? Tell me, tell me about that. A Actually, bit. not because now it's now it's now it's 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 almost in my gene pool That's good. right now. It's good. like I'm now I am uh, I I wake up ready, you know. I don't have to psych myself into trying to be ready. I, I'm, I, I am. I so tell myself all the time, what am I doing today? What am I doing today? How am I getting better? What is, you know, where, where's, where's better coming from in this schedule today? Um, who, who am I pouring into? Who's pouring into me? Um, that, uh, because I constantly think that way, it's not even, it's, um, it's, it's completely second nature. It's really good. You know, even as you look back to childhood, you were raised by a Methodist minister, right? Yes. What did your What did your dad do well, shaping Uh, you to who you are today? He was the greatest storyteller I ever met. He was fantastic. Yeah. He, um, but he used to tell me all the time, and so I. It's funny because now I teach a course on storytelling uh, for Simon Sinek, right? Who is the guy that we talked about? Start with why. Yep. Um, uh, our buddy, John Maxwell calls me, um, the best storyteller he's ever worked with. And, uh, I, I love telling stories Mm, and, mm. um, my father taught me how to be a, how to be a storyteller. Um, he taught me the, um, the habits, the good storytelling. And it's not a formula. Um, storytelling is not formulaic as some people want it to be and insert hero here. And here's the journey. You know, here's the sacrifice. Storytelling is uh, it's built around a series of habits and I work on them all the time on how do I how do I how do I draw other people into conversation uh, through story? Mm. You know, you even look back at Jesus's life and now he was the master storyteller. Everything was a story, wasn't it? So that was what my father used to say. And, you know, and again, today you probably can't say this. I don't know if I should say this. But he said back then, he said, you know, the beauty of it, he said, the, among the greatest storytellers of all time are Jesus Christ and Adolf Hitler, right? That's right. You know, storytelling uh, gets large numbers of people to go do incredible things, not always good. That's right. And so be careful about the story you tell. And, um, uh, but, you know, it's true that, um, you know, storytelling is, it's the magnet, right? It is the draw. And those who do it well um, are, have the capacity to bring others with them. You have rubbed shoulders with so many great people. We're, and today, today I got Mike Lynch. It's good. Listen, listen, and we got to have we've got to have a low bar to make the high bar seem important, <laughs> right? I mean, that's very important. So I, I'm not going to get to the team's piece because this is that I, I want to sink in on the the people piece of this. You've rubbed shoulders from Coach K mm. to one on one with Michael Jordan mm. to Walter Payton and Warwick Dunn and David Ross and Shaquille O'Neal. What are things that they were all doing very different things at very different eras and times, but what's something what's in John Wooden, what are, what are two or three things these greats had in common that you would never expect them to have had in common? Uh, well, the number one answer I'd give you to that 
is that they, at some stage in their life, they learn to hate losing more than they love winning. How about that? That, that uh, winning for most of those who are pretty good at what they do, winning is almost what they, it's, it's the expected outcome, right? It's mm-hmm. not a surprise. Doesn't give them a thrill. Doesn't make them cry. Um, winning is what they expect. Um, losing, losing hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, you take Nick Saban. One of my favorite lines from Nick, whenever he and I've been together, is he talks about never wasting a loss. Mm-hmm. Right? Never waste a good loss. That's his line, and I I, I love it. Right? He never wait. Uh, there's learning to be had, and unfortunately, it's hard. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's hard to teach the successful yeah, because they, they, um, they begin to get a little full of themselves, a little overly comfortable, confident. Fortunately, sometimes the only time we really get a chance to learn is in a good loss. And so does losing hurt mm, mm. and, um, and, and, you know, Anyway, it's uh, so that's that's number one. And I'll tell you, I mean, to even to where we are today, my I mean, I don't know if you know this, I'm doing Deion Sanders book right now. I'm writing Deion's wow. book. And, um, you know, he and I was with him last week in in Boulder. And uh, I mean, we had an entire conversation on this exact subject. Uh, you know, that if, if, if losing has to hurt mm. or or you're not going to learn something from it. Wow. And, um, if you can excuse it, if you can make up, if you can blame somebody, you know, if, if there's always an answer every time you don't get what you came for, you're not learning. If That's you're right. not learning, if you're not learning, then it wasn't really, a, a, it wasn't a, a, a good loss. And there mm. can be good losses. That's so good. That is so good. You know, it's funny. I remember watching a, uh, Bear Grylls episode with Dion out. It was phenomenal. One of the best things I've ever watched. And Dion really unpacks his faith story oh, sitting around hard. a campfire. Uh, Bear Grylls is one of the best interviewers I've ever heard. And just the way he would get people to unpack stories. How common do you see faith playing a role in these great leaders' lives, in these yeah. great athletes' lives? So, I put it in I, the way I phrase it is that they have a, a, a sense of a higher, they, they believe in a higher power. Mm-hmm. They don't all share my faith. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and I have had amazing conversations about faith. We don't, we don't share the same, we don't worship the same God, mm-hmm. but we both believe that there is a place for um, us in a universe that's created because um, there is a there's a there's a master source out there, and and so I'm always really careful, I, you know, because I want to be respectful of other people's That's right. faiths and beliefs. But I, but I do find, you know, Warwick Dunn, we talked about it, right? Doesn't share his faith openly, but he's a man of faith. Walter Payton unbelievable great john wooden was maybe one of the greatest oh, men of faith i've ever met right i mean the guy is spectacular everything you know he used to say all the time the only he said if they were to he said i don't need to talk about my faith he said but if they if i were to ever be tried for it i just want to make sure they can convict me right oh, you know <laughs> such a good line 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, everywhere I go, I mean, there is a, there's this belief that, you know, many people think that the best always think of themselves as the center of the universe. Not true. Mm -hmm. They recognize that, uh, they recognize it, it, none of it matters if there isn't something bigger out there. Mm. You know, I know you've got a family that's super precious to you and you've got lots of followers, people that love you from a distance that read your work. I can't wait to wait to read your book on Dion. I mean, he is, it doesn't matter. Listen, I do all these leadership groups with men and from yeah. athletic leaders to civic leaders, to uh, police leaders, everybody's talking about Dion. It's sort of the talk right now. It's I know. I, I argue that like the two greatest names in, in sports today are, are, are Deion Sanders and Taylor Swift. I mean, you know, like you know, it's true though. That's right. If you can't have a conversation with one of those two in the conversation, you're not talking about sports today. Right? It is crazy. And yeah. everybody's fascinated. You know, everybody's fascinated yeah. with it and they know him for different things. And of course he's an Atlanta icon from his years with the Falcons and the Braves and throwing water on Tim McCarver. I mean, that was one of his, one of his moments low, there, low, low moments, one of his low moments during the years, yeah. you know, when you think of Don Yeager's life, the, the Bible says this about King David. He said he lived his purpose in his generation, and then he was done. It's one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. He mm. fell asleep. I mm. believe God knits us all together for a purpose bigger than us. Mm. What do you believe was the purpose that God, God created Don Yeager for that he may not have created anybody else for? Mm. I would probably say um, to be the eyes and ears that helped some pretty extraordinary people share their story with the world in a way that they may not have been able to without the, re without the relationship. That was so crazy. We got to the end of almost our hour together, and I couldn't believe it was over. I hadn't even gotten to the questions that I wanted to ask. But I tell you what, buddy, I am sure glad I got to spend that time with Don Yeager. I am better for it. I learned so many great lessons and just so, so rich. Well, we are just getting started in 2023. It's hard to believe we're getting towards the tail end, but I feel like we're just rolling up our sleeves. We get to sit down with John and Anna Mann. You are going to enjoy this precious couple so much. They're going to be unpacking their journey with us and talking about their book, Go Give Her Marriage. And it is so good and they just they just peel back the covers a little bit on what great marriages look like and how it takes the two pouring in to make it even better and you're going to enjoy it so if you've enjoyed this episode i want you to go leave a rating and review on itunes or spotify or wherever you're listening from today and i want you to help us get this podcast into the hands of everybody that needs it Thanks again for joining us today, and I don't know where you're listening from, but I want you to go love God, go love people, and let's live sent and make a difference for something bigger than us. Have a great day, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com. 